what I wanted to do is not go through every uh, line and every verse, but to go through certain parts of the Book of Ruth to give a little bit of background and a little bit of context to hopefully make it more meaningful uh, as you read it and, and as we study it. And um, I want to review uh, a couple of classes that we held over the winter while a lot of people were away. And, and this way, we have a chance to, to do it more in person. And I hope to continue probably after Passover with a second session and a third session. And then by then, we'll be up to what everyone else is up to, and we'll have a couple more sessions uh, with everyone together. The Book of Ruth is from a very early period in Jewish history. When the Jewish people first left Egypt, they traveled to the desert for 40 years, they came into the land of Israel. And when they came into the land of Israel, they're led by Joshua. It took a number of years to conquer and to divide the land. And then, for the next almost 400 years, is a period that we call the period of the Shoftim, of the judges. We have a book of, prophets, of the prophets called Shoftim, the judges, and it covers this early time period, and it's a very strange time period because there is no government. There is no structure. There is no uh, bureaucracy. There is no head of state. The only thing there is, is a shofate. There was a shofate, a judge, in each generation. And he would uh, travel around and adjudicate disputes. And um, that was basically it. But by and large, society ran itself. And that period lasted, as I say, about 400 years until we begin the period of the monarchy with King David. And that ushers in another period of about 400 years of the period of the kings of Israel during the first temple period. But this story happens during the first era, during the, the, the era of the judges. And if you look at the very top, so I'm in, in the, this brown book on page 85, which is the beginning of the book of Ruth. And it, it, the first line is, it happened in the days when the judges judged. So it, it places this story at this very early period in Jewish history. It's almost 3,000 years ago. It's hard to even comprehend that. And one of the things that we're going to get from a study of this work is to get a picture of what society looked like at that time. And it's going to be, I hope that you'll find it, a very interesting glimpse at what Jewish society was like at the very beginning of Jewish history. So it was the period when the judges judged, and there was a famine in the land, and a man went from Bethlehem, which the Hebrew word is Bethlehem, but that's the city today, the town today, just south of Jerusalem, in Judah, southern part of Israel, to sojourn in the fields of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. His name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and his sons were Machlon and Kilion. So, there's a lot of information that's not so obvious on the surface. 
and that really sets the scene for this whole story. The first thing to, to say is that Elimelech was one, the shofet. He was the leader. And there's a famine. So the famine comes, and he takes his wife and his two sons, and he leaves, and he goes to Moab. What does that What does that tell you about uh, about leadership? He split when times were tough. not really exercising leadership. So I, I, the commentators point out that this is an implicit criticism of him. He's 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 living during the time of the Shoftim. He is a Shofet. There's a famine, and he leaves. And he comes from a place called Beis Lechem. Now, Beis Lechem, Bethlehem, is a very important place in Jewish history. It is the place where, a few generations later, the place where King David is born and lives, and his family lives. And in fact, it is the place of all of the kings from the Davidic line from that, that descend from King David, they all come from this place called Beis Lechem. So what does it mean that there is a town where all of the kings come from, all of the leaders come from, including this leader, that has the name Beis Lechem? What do you think is the implication of that? What is the word? Do you know what the word means? House of bread. House of bread. House of bread. What, so, what does that? What does that mean? What is that? Why is it that the king should come from a place called House of Bread? House of abundance. Okay, could be, could be. I would suggest, and I'm not the first to suggest this. A number of commentators point out that that's the first duty of a leader is to make sure that. That people have have food to make sure that you're taking care of your people. The Jewish view of leadership, you don't become a leader to amass great wealth, to amass great power, to uh, have uh, people honor you and respect you. Those are not the reasons for leadership. That's not the purpose of leadership. The reason for leadership is to provide help to, to your people. You have a responsibility to, to make sure that your people are okay. And so having the leaders come from Beis Lechem is a way of saying, this is, this is your job, this is your priority. This is what you're supposed to be looking out for. Which makes Elimelech's behavior all the more difficult and problematic because not only is he abdicating his role, he's also abdicating the meaning of the place that he comes from. And we're going to see within the narrative that that's going to be very, very important to the story. So he leaves. But not only that, he leaves to go to Moab. And the problem with that is that Moab is a country that was an enemy of Israel. Now, um, do you know where Moab is? So... Have, have any of you ever, have you been to Masada? Have you been to the top of Masada? So when you stand at the top of Masada, you remember, you can look and see the Jordan River, and you can see the other side of the Jordan River, that's Jordan, that's the southern part of Jordan, that's Moab. 
That's Moab. The, on the eastern bank of the Jordan River, the southern part of, is Moab. The northern part is, was, in ancient times was a nation called Ammon. And the people of Moab were very, very nasty to the Jewish people. When the Jews were, were traveling through the desert to get to Israel, they actually approached from the east and they needed to pass through Moab to get to Israel. And they asked the, the leaders of Moab to let them pass through and they refused. And they made them go in a very long journey, a circuitous journey around. And God says, that's not good. God says, there's something wrong with the people of Moab. There's something, there's something in the personality. There's a cruelty. There's a, a, an insensitivity. And I don't want them mixing with the Jewish people to the extent that there's a mitzvah in the Torah. There's a commandment where God says, a person from Moab, they're allowed to convert to Judaism. Anybody could convert to Judaism. But they're not allowed to marry a Jewish person. They're not allowed to marry a Jewish person. Now, we're going to see a few details about this later on, and this is going to be very important to the story later on, but not till the third chapter. So you have to hold this in the back of your mind for a while. But what does it mean that Elimelech takes his family and goes specifically to this place? Maybe it's logistics. Maybe it's the closest place where there was food. But it's very strange. Of all places. Of all places to go, to go to a place that is an enemy of your own people. And I'm going to show you in just a minute, there's going to be an impact from that, from that decision. All right, they go. And then Elimelech dies and she had two sons. The two sons married women in Moab. And then the two sons died. So now Naomi is bereaved of her husband and her two sons. And now she has these two women who, technically speaking, formally were her daughters-in-law. I'm sure they had a very close relationship, but she has these two women. And she hears that the famine is over in Israel, and she says to these two young women, I'm going back. I'm going back. I, I want you just to think for a minute about what must be going on emotionally for Naomi as she's coming back, because she's coming back after a number of years have passed. She's been away for a number of years. And she's really coming back a different person because she left uh, an aristocrat, the wife of a leader, presumably wealthy, uh, with a family. And she's going to come back in a very, very different circumstance. Number one, she has no family. She lost all of her wealth. She comes back penniless, and that's going to be an important part of the story. She literally doesn't have food to eat. And she also comes back, she's going to come back with the emotional baggage of whatever it meant for her to leave. Now, we don't know. I mean, the narrative doesn't tell us if she agreed with Elimelech 
leaving. If she agreed to go to Moab, we, we don't we don't know that. We can only suppose that. But I would imagine, thinking about her emotional state, she's coming back a, a different person, uh, a woman probably with a certain amount of embarrassment, a certain amount of shame, and a person who is in a very, very different circumstance than, than when she left. And, and so I, I think we have to understand that there's a lot of emotion, a lot of baggage that's going to be going on, and we're going to see how it plays out within the narrative. Of course, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who is going to come back with her, is also going to come with a, a, a lot of baggage because... Um, she doesn't know anybody, right? She's never been there. She's completely a stranger. And she comes from this nation that is an enemy of the people that she's coming with. Did she convert to Judaism? We're going to talk about that. Yes, yes, she did convert to Judaism. Yes, and we're going to talk about that. That's what we're going to discuss tonight. But she also is going to have a lot of emotional stuff going on, and so... As we go through the story, we want to try to be aware, and I'm going to show you within the text how the text is aware of the complexity of the emotional baggage that both of these women have. So, she says, um, I'm going back. And she says to the two young women, you should go home. Um, I'm going back. I'm going to have enough difficulty taking care of myself and we don't have any connection. I don't have anything to give you. I'm not even able to, to take care of you. I certainly don't have anything to offer you when we go back. And so you're best off. You go back to your father's home. Go back to where you came from and, and that's really going to be the, the, the best. That's going to be the best advice for you. She kisses them and they cry. And then, if you take a look at the top of the next page, 87, she kisses them again, and Arpa, one of the daughters-in-law, she goes back. She listens to Naomi, and she goes back. But Ruth, the other one, she says, no, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay with you, and I'm coming back with you. And uh, she comes back. Why did Ruth want to come back with her? Well, as we see the story unfold, uh, presumably she was committed to taking care of Naomi. Naomi was an older woman. I assume they had a close relationship. And uh, Ruth wants to take care of her. She wants to make sure she's all right. She wants to make sure she's not alone because she's coming back alone. And Ruth also wants to come back because she has converted to Judaism. Now, the commentators disagree about when she converted. And it's not clear within the text. Did she convert before she married Naomi's son? Did she convert only later as she was about to come into back to Beis Lechem? It's not clear from the text could be either way. But she converts to Judaism. Did the other sister convert? 
No, she didn't come. Well, let, 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 me, let me be more precise. We, the text doesn't mention that she converted. There's no, there's no indication that she converted. And so Ruth is now the, a role model of what conversion is. And she expresses... Her, the 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 journey, the the spiritual and the emotional journey of converting to Judaism, in these verses near the top of the page, starting from uh, verse 16, 17, 18. Now, I wanna I wanna pose a question, and I want you to keep this in mind. Because we're going to give a number of different answers to this question. This is one of the books in the Bible. One of the books of the Torah. In Jewish communities all over the world, we have the custom that we read this book on Shavuot, the holiday, the festival of Shavuot, which occurs seven weeks after Passover. And the question is, why do we read the book of Ruth on Shavuot? There's no obvious, overt connection. It doesn't talk about the holiday of Shavuot in this book. So one of the questions we need to ask, and we're going to, as I say, we're going to keep asking it because we're going to come up with different answers. There's several, numerous answers. Why do we read it on Shavuot? And I want to mention the first answer now. The process that Ruth undergoes to convert to Judaism takes as its um, model the process of the Jewish people standing at Mount Sinai. The holiday of Shavuos commemorates that the Jewish people came to Mount Sinai and stood around Mount Sinai and God appeared to the entire Jewish people and God spoke to them the Ten Commandments and God then proceeded through Moshe to teach the rest of the Torah to the Jewish people. So Shavuos is the commemoration of our closest encounter, direct encounter with God and God revealing himself and the process that the Jewish people went through at Mount Sinai is exactly the same as the process that every single convert goes through when they convert to Judaism. That's the the model of conversion. And that model consists of the following practices. Number one, there is a commitment to following the commandments of God. That's called Kabbalat Mitzvot, to accept upon oneself the obligation to observe the commandments to the best of one's ability, and to immerse in a mikvah. A mikvah is a body of water. It symbolizes purity and rebirth. It's like being reborn. And it symbolizes that a person who converts is assuming a new identity, a new life, so to speak. So there is this symbolic component and there is this very practical lifestyle component. 
the Jewish people standing on Mount Sinai, as recorded in the book of Exodus, did both of those things. They immersed in a mikvah. First, men have a requirement to undergo circumcision. A man has to have a bris milah, circumcision. That's for men. Then for everyone, there has to be immersing, immersion in a mikvah. And there is this requirement to accept upon oneself to observe all the commandments to the best of one's ability. And that's done in the famous verse in the Torah where the Jewish people say to God, Nasev nishma, we will observe your laws and we will study them. Meaning we commit to observing them even if we don't yet know all of them. We commit to observing them as we learn about them. We're going to commit to doing them. So committing to practice an observant Jewish lifestyle that's the defining feature of what conversion is. And that's what the Jewish people did. And that's what Ruth does as part of this process of conversion. Now, she expresses it in more poetic language, and she actually adds something else to it, which I'm going to point out in just a moment. But one of the reasons that we read the book of Ruth on Shavuos is that what we're celebrating on Shavuos as an entire Jewish people, is really what Ruth went through as an individual and what every single convert goes through as an individual. So, if, if I ask you this question, why is it that in the Torah, God commands us repeatedly, numerous, numerous times, you should love the convert? Don't ever mistreat the convert. Don't ever look down upon a person who converts to Judaism. Don't ever disparage the convert. So if I were to ask you, why is that such an important commandment, and why does God repeat that so many times? Well, obviously, first of all, because it's not nice. <laughs> shouldn't disparage anybody, but certainly not a person who's vulnerable and who has been through a lot and who comes from a very different place. So it's just not nice. Second of all, a person who converts is a very holy person. They've They've made sacrifices. They've undergone a transformation. They should be respected and not looked down upon, God forbid. But also because every single person who is born Jewish, our ancestors went through the exact same process. And every year when we celebrate Shavuos, we are supposed to relive going through that process of recommitting ourselves to keeping God's Torah. And the truth is, that's really what a bar and a bat mitzvah mean. When a, a boy reaches 13 and a girl reaches 12, it means that that's the time where they are responsible to keep God's commandments. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you're a man or a woman. I know every bar mitzvah boy says, I'm a man. It's not true. They're a boy. But it means that, according to Jewish law, you're obligated to observe a Jewish lifestyle to the best of your ability for the rest of your life. So that concept of committing and recommitting and celebrating that commitment to God's commandments, that is the common denominator between a bar and a bat mitzvah, between Shavuot and the book of Ruth. And that's why, that's why we're putting them all together. That's why we're going to celebrate this. Old, <laughs> yeah, all right. So you just delayed the party for a while. Okay, that's fine. As long as you get to it. But we're, we put it together because all three of these are really about the same subject. That's, that's, that's why we're doing it this way. So let's see how Ruth describes it. 
Verse 16, a few lines from the top of the page. But Ruth said, Do not, she's speaking to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you. She says, For wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may God do to me and more if anything but death separates me from you. So let's go through that and we'll see how she's really expressing the same thing that happened to the entire Jewish people in Mansane. She's expressing in a more, much more beautiful and a poetic manner and also to see what she adds to that because she adds something new and in this sense she becomes the teacher for all history of what is conversion to Judaism. So let's see this. She says, wherever you go, I will go. Now, first of all, she means, means this in a geographical manner. You're going back to Beis Lechem, I'm coming with you. But she also means it in a symbolic manner because the term of walking or going is the term that we use for following Jewish law, for following a Jewish lifestyle. In fact, the word for Jewish law is halakha. We translate the word halakha as Jewish law. <coughs> but the the literal translation of halakha is walking or going or and it means the way that you go through life, the way that you live your life, the way that you move through life. <coughs> so when she says where you go I will go, what she's saying is I am going to follow your lifestyle. I'm going to accept upon myself to observe the commandments just the way you observe the commandments. So she's expressing this concept of Nasev and Ishmael that the entire Jewish people accepted at Mount Sinai. Where you lodge, I will lodge. And then she says, your people are my people. So here she adds something very important. Because she expresses that conversion to Judaism is not only the conversion to a religion, to religious practice, it's also the conversion to a people, a conversion to a community. And that's a very, very important part of conversion. You know, there are some people who may be interested in, in, in the Jewish religion. They want to, they find beauty in in, in celebrating Shabbat. They find meaning in keeping kosher. They find meaning in the holidays and meaning in the concept of tzedakah and charity and kindness. They find meaning. But they don't necessarily want to be part of the community. They, want to, they don't necessarily want to be part of the, the people of Israel. What Ruth is adding is this becomes a a crucial factor in what conversion to Judaism is. And this gets incorporated into Jewish law. Because from the time of Ruth, this is what we say to a person who converts. We say, do you want to observe a Jewish lifestyle? Yes. Do you, but we also ask, do you want to be part of the Jewish people? And that means, do you want to participate in the life of the Jewish people? It means, when something happens to the Jewish people, it's happening to you that you feel an identification with the people, not just the religion, not just the laws, but the people. Do you want to participate in the life of the community? 
person who says, you know what, I, I just, I like the commandments. I want to live by myself. I want to live on my own, you know. So we say, listen, you can do whatever you want. You're, you're welcome to go live on your own and, and to practice whatever you want to practice. But if you're coming to us for conversion, our, what we're offering, we're offering a chance to be part of a people. If that's what you want, then we're willing to speak to you. You also have to commit to observing the laws, but you have to also want to be part of the people. And, and Ruth's words get translated into Jewish law that literally in the conversion ceremony that we do today and for the last 3,000 years, we ask this question to the person. Do you want to be part of the Jewish people? And do you realize it's always not, not always such an easy thing? You realize you're, you're asking to join a people that is not really the most popular group around. And, and unless you're committed to that part of it, that's a necessary part of what conversion is. And this is something that Ruth teaches us. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Because in addition to that, you also have to have the next line, your God is my God. Meaning, you have to, be, you have to want the religious part also. Both go together. They go hand in hand. And then she says, where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. In other words, it's for life. It's permanent. When a person converts to Judaism, it's for the rest of their life. There's no such thing in Jewish law as converting out of Judaism. Now, I recognize that there are people who convert to Judaism and and. I'm an Orthodox rabbi. When I, when I use the term convert to Judaism, I mean convert to Judaism in accordance with traditional Jewish law. Once that's happened, you're Jewish for the rest of your life. And from the point of view of Jewish law, there's no such thing as converting out of Judaism, or even if you're born Jewish. Now, I recognize there are people that are born Jewish that convert to other religions and practice other religions. I, I realize that. But, and... Person's free to call themselves whatever they, you know, whatever they want to call themselves. I can't control what people will call themselves. But you should just know from the point of view, from our point of view, we still see you as Jewish. We don't recognize the ability to convert out of Judaism. So a person who converts to another religion, a Jew who converts to another religion, if, if they come to shul, we're going to count them as part of a minion. They're Jewish. Because they were born Jewish. Because they're born Jewish. So, and if you convert to Judaism, it's for the rest of your life. So that's a really important part that Ruth is explaining to us. And then she becomes the teacher. Because for all time, we're going to make this connection that Ruth is the ideal role model of what it means to convert to Judaism. Because it's this paragraph that teaches... This is the textbook. This is the, this is the passage that teaches us what conversion is. He, this is the source of where the rabbis derive all of the rules and the lessons of what is included in conversion to Judaism. So she becomes 
the role model for all time for converts. That's why, by the way, a lot of people that, a lot of women that convert to Judaism take the name Ruth because it, it, it makes a lot of sense. I'm sorry? Well, Esther's another one, yep. and there's another reason for that. We'll see that. But Esther was born Jewish. But the mother has to have been Jewish for the children to be Jewish, right? Yes. Right. Yes. So, but once Ruth but converts, her, so her children will be Jewish. Jewish her children will be Jewish. So, one of the important parts of the book of Ruth is that we're meeting this woman who is going to become for all time the role model of what it means to convert to Judaism. And the fact that we read this book on Shavuos and remind ourselves that every one of us went through the same process is meant to teach us the high regard we are supposed to hold someone who goes through this, this transformation. And she becomes a role model as you'll see later, not only for conversion, but for Jewish women as a whole. And, and I'm going to show that to you as we go through the narrative. So she comes back. And she comes back with, uh, as I say, both of them with quite a bit of baggage and a lot of emotional complexity. And we're going to see how that, uh, we're going to see how that unfolds as we, as we go along. So I want to cover one more subject. And again, this now is not connected to what we saw before. I want to prepare you for, and I hope that you'll reread the first chapter after we've had this discussion, hopefully it will, it will be more, you'll have a depth to it. I want to now pr start to provide, I'm not going to get to the whole thing tonight, but I want to start to provide background for the second chapter. Because in order to understand the second chapter, there are several subjects that you need to know that you might not be so familiar with. So by providing some background and providing some some context, it will make uh, the rest of the story hopefully much more, much more meaningful. It goes like this. This is now a new subject not connected to what we talked about up until then. If I were to ask you, I'm asking you, <laughs> I'm asking you, um, what does Judaism consist of? What, what, what makes up Jewish life? What, what do we do when we do Jewish? What, what is it? What, what's included? What do you do that's Jewish? Lighting Shabbos candles. Lighting Shabbos candles, yes. Being together with the family at Shabbat. Yes, observing Shabbat. Yes, going to shul synagogue. Yes, yes. Prayer, observing the holidays. Using a mikvah. Maybe for some people keeping kosher, hopefully keeping kosher. giving tzedakah, giving charity, doing acts of kindness, working to help uh, improve the world. Those, I think a lot of people do that from a, a sense of their Jewish values. Okay. 
Those are all important things and those are all true. But we live in a time where we're only seeing a very tiny slice of what a Jewish life is supposed to be. Because the Torah has, within the five books of of Moses, the first five books of the Torah, the Torah has 613 commandments. In addition to 613 that are in the Torah, the rabbis added many more rabbinic laws, so there are many, many, many more. But let's just start with the 613, because it's a definite number. Of those 613, only about a third of those are applicable to us today. And many of them are in the categories that you just mentioned. Observing Shabbat, keeping the holidays, keeping kosher, using the mikvah, giving tzedakah, telling the truth. A few other subjects, I mean, a number of other subjects, but all of that together is only about a third of all the commandments. And about two-thirds of the commandments, many of us are not familiar with because they're not practically relevant today because they either relate to the sacrifices and offerings in the Beit HaMikdash in the Temple in Jerusalem, and we don't have the Beit HaMikdash, the Temple in Jerusalem, so all those laws about the gifts and the sacrifices and the priests and the Levites, that's a big chunk of them. And even if we do know a little bit about it, it sounds very strange because we're not used to it. We certainly don't see it. A lot of the laws that we do not have relate to agriculture. Many, many of the laws in the Torah relate to agriculture, but that only applies if you're a farmer in Israel and only during the times in history when a majority of the world's Jews live in Israel, which does not apply now and has not applied for over 2,000 years. Plus, the other large chunk relate to subjects that you might not think are part of Judaism, but they are. For example, how to run a country, how to build a city, how to develop a social structure, how to have a system of welfare, how to take care of the problem of poverty. Those kinds of societal questions, how to run a a society, or what I would call social policy, we normally think about that as the subject of government. But the truth is, that's an intrinsic part of Judaism. So, when we think of Judaism as a religion, with religious subjects, yes, it's true, but that's only because we're looking at a very small part of it. We're only looking at the part that's left after the temple is destroyed, after the Jews are exiled from from the land of Israel, after we're scattered all over the world, we're left with a subject that we commonly refer to as the religious part of it. But we're missing the big picture because that is supposed to fit into the larger structure of the entire lifestyle of a Jewish person, what God intended when he gave the Torah to the Jewish people, which is, an entire social policy, both for the individual and for the society. And we don't see it. We don't see it because we don't have it, and many of us are not familiar with it. 
But here's the thing. If you want to learn what it is, this is the place to, to see it. The Book of Ruth. Because the Book of Ruth is going to give us a picture of how society was organized. How it was run. At least parts of it. How it was run. Now, in order to appreciate it, we've got to go back to the Torah and we've got to study some commandments that maybe you're not so familiar with, but they're amazing. And you might never have thought to yourself that these are in the same category as commandments like keeping Shabbat and keeping kosher and these other commandments that we are familiar with, but we're going to study them. The truth is that in our day, we're starting to see a reversal of that process because when Jews come back to Israel for the first time in 2,000 years, we are starting now in our day to confront some of these questions. Now, it's true. Israeli society today is not a religious society. There are religious Jews and secular Jews. There are all kinds of Jews in Israel and non-Jews in Israel. But there are certain parts of modern Israeli society where there is an attempt to base it on Torah principles. I'll just give you just one example. Jewish law has a complete and detailed system of the ethics of warfare, of how to wage war. Now, for 2,000 years, that was not relevant to us because there was no such thing as a Jewish army. Today there is. Today there is an IDF, an Israeli army. Now, and the Israeli army today, I would not say is run in accordance with Jewish law, but the ethics that have been developed by which the IDF protects the Jewish people to a, to a certain extent is based on classical Jewish sources. And the, the, the amazing thing is there are these sources. If you go back to the Talmud, which is the largest repository of Jewish learning, you find discussions of how to wage war based on the commandments in the Torah with all the questions that we face today. How do you protect civilians in warfare? What kind of risk are you able to take? The most difficult and complicated questions that we face today in warfare, we have the sources for it. We, we're a little rusty because we haven't been applying it, but we can go back to these sources and study. So all of a sudden, for the first time in 2,000 years, an area of Jewish law, and most people probably never knew that there's such a thing as commandments about how to go to war, but there are. And we're putting them into practice now for the first time in 2,000 years. There are some other areas of Jewish law where it's, so to speak, coming back to life, which is an amazing thing. What we're going to study the next time is several commandments, mitzvot in the Torah, that have not actually yet come back to life, but that were in practice during this time. And we're going to study the commandments and see how they're meant to address these wider societal, social policy issues. And then we're going to see how they were actually lived and observed through the narrative of this story. So hopefully the next time we get together, it'll probably be right after Passover, and I'll send out an email and get another time that's, that's good for everybody. We'll get together, 
and we'll study these. These I have two, three, three uh, subjects to study with you, and then to show you how they're. You see them actually in practice, in the narrative in the second and the third chapter.